All right, let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. All right, and we'll begin with our hymn of the month, a new hymn this week. I know my faith is founded uh, 587. Where 
I by your great mercy the end of faith attain. All right, we'll continue with the catechism memory work. What is the sacrament of the altar? It is the true body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ under the bread and wine instituted by Christ himself for us Christians to eat and to drink. And the Bible memory work, we'll do it um, phrase by phrase. Repeat after me. The cup of blessing that we bless. The cup of blessing that we bless. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break. Is it not a participation in the body of Christ? First Corinthians 10:16. And then all together, try without looking if you can. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? And the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? 1 Corinthians 10:16. Let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. And Luther's morning prayer. I thank you, my heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have kept me this night from all harm and danger, And I pray that you keep me this day also from sin and every evil, that all my doings in life may please you. For into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul in all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. The Almighty and merciful Lord, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, bless us and keep us. Amen. All right, uh, kids can go off to Sunday school. as has become my custom, I'd like to say a little bit about the hymn of the month first and about the catechism before we jump into the Bible portion. So when we talk about hymnody, and uh, I, I think it's, it's valuable to talk about hymnody because when you have instilled in you a, a love for the Christian hymnody that we sing at church, then um, it, will, it is truly edifying. And when we talk about hymnody, what, what hymnody is, what hymns are, is poems. That's, they're poems set to music. That's, that's really what hymns are, right? They're, they're Christian poems set to uh, Christian music. And when we analyze poetry, uh, if you remember way back to high school or um, whenever the last time you had to memorize a, a poem was or, or analyze a poem was, one of the things that you want to look at in, the, in a poem is the scope of the poem. So the early church would use this uh, to talk about a- interpreting scripture, the idea of uh, scope um, in Greek, skopos, which is where we get the word, which if you think about uh, like shooting at, you know, an arrow or shooting a gun, that and you, you, you have a scope that you're looking through, you're looking at the goal. 
right? So what, what's the trajectory and the goal uh, of, the, of, of what's going to be covered here and what, um, what the purpose of the poem is? And uh, there's a, the, the, another word that the early church would use is telos, um, which you may have heard that Greek word before. It means end or completion or perfection. Um, and that's the word when Jesus says it is finished. Uh, that, that's the word telos. Um, and so the scope leads toward the telos, right? The skopos leads towards the telos. That's how the early church would talk about interpreting certain passages of scripture. What's the, what's the scope and telos of the, uh, of the passage? But the same thing we can do with poetry. And, um, well, we have an English teacher in the house, so he can correct me on all this later. But, um, but I think if you look at this hymn, I know my faith is founded. It has a... It has kind of a very simple but also beautiful scope to it, um, its trajectory. It starts – so the, the very first line uh, gives, gives away what the, the, the first part of the structure of the poem is going to be, or the hymn. I know my faith is founded. So we're talking about a foundation here. And so the hymn starts talking about the foundation of the Christian faith, which is uh, what? Unmoved, I stand on his sure word, on his sure word. Uh, and then uh, from, from there in that first stanza, um, it's all about how God's word is the sure foundation of faith. Um, and that's really what the hymn is all about. It's Like I said, it's kind of a simple hymn. It's just about faith. But it has this kind of three-part scope. It starts with the foundation of faith, which is scripture, and then it's going to move into the life of faith in the second stanza. Increase my faith, dear Savior, for Satan seeks by night and day. Uh, but Lord, you with Lord beside me, I, I shall be undismayed. And uh, abide with me, O Savior, a firmer faith bestow. Uh, then I shall bid defiance to every evil foe. So the life of faith where we're struggling against devil, the devil and we're struggling against Satan and we want our faith to be increased. So at first, where does our faith come from? It's founded on the word of God. And then how do we move on from there? We want, we pray that our faith would be increased. And then... In the third stanza, we move towards that last part of the trajectory. So the, the first part of the first stanza of the hymn is when the, the arrow is still cocked in the, in, the, in the bow, ready to be shot. It's setting in its foundation in the word of God. And then we're, we're, we're flying through life and uh, we're praying that our faith would be increased. And now we're looking towards the end goal in the third stanza. Let me a steadfast trust retain, and then at my departure, Lord, take me home to you, your riches to inherit as all you said hold true. In life and death, Lord, keep me until your heaven I gain, where I, by your great mercy, the end of faith attain. So really this hymn, the scope of this hymn is the, is the entire Christian life, right? The foundation set in the word at the beginning, the life of faith where we're praying and fighting against the devil and our faith is increasing, sanctification, and then the end, which is uh, a good death in the in the Lord, where the where heaven we gain at our last day, and uh, that it's so simple, right? I mean, it's just it's it's all of life, 
kind of split up into three basic parts, and uh, yet it's so beautiful that um, all of it comes back to that first line, I know my faith is founded, right? And we have the surety of faith. And so uh, we'll look at some of the language that the hymn uses probably in the next couple of weeks, um, but that's the first thing that stood out to me about this hymn is just that simple kind of three-part structure and the scope that it that it covers uh, in that. So... Any any questions or comments on that hymn? Oh, the, well, I'll talk about that next week. Remind me next week I want to talk about the author of this hymn. Um, because he only has three hymns in our hymnal, and they're they're all fantastic. Uh, and so... Um, Did you say that I know my faith is founded is assurance? Yeah, that when we say I know my faith is founded, we're, we're confessing the assurance we have in Christ. That... Um, God's word is objectively true. It's given to us by God above. And when we found our faith on that, that's a sure foundation. It's like a foundation to a house, right? And that, this is what Jesus preaches um, when, he, when he says the foolish man builds his house on the sand, the, the wise man builds his house upon the rock, right? That when you build your house on Jesus Christ, when you build your house on the word, then, then it's not going to move. Right. And and that's going to that foundation is what's going to get us through the rest of life and get us to the end goal. Right. In the same way that um, if. Back to my Donner arrow analogy, if uh, the foundation is good, if your if your grip on the gun is good and if your trigger pull is good and if your uh, scope is sighted in, then then it's going to go well. Right. And and that's that's what the word is to us. It's that it's it's all those basics and those uh, that foundation, good foundation being in place for our lives. Yeah, good question. Any other comments or questions? Yes, Steve. Uh, I've seen the symbol where there's a target, you know, and of course you miss the target, but then you're skimming, you know, you're off the target too. Yeah. Um, kind of a interesting picture. You know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard that before. That sinning is like uh, is to miss missed the mark. Actually, I think there's some etymo- etymological uh, linguistic wordplay there that to sin means to miss the mark. Is that... Uh, I have to go back and check yeah, check and the Greek. Usually they'll have like the Ten yeah. Commandments tablets in the middle of the target. Right. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure the root of the word sin is connected to missing the mark. Um, and... Right, I mean that—that's a good way to describe it. That God, God set this world in order uh, to work in a certain way, and He has His the ways in which He desires His people to live, and um, to to aim for that uh, is or to to go astray from that. Right. So as if an arrow would go astray or a bolt would go astray, to miss that mark is it means to go outside of God's will, right, to go against God's will. So, yeah, that's a, to miss the mark, I, I gotta look that up, I'm, I'm almost positive that that has something to do with the, like, original definition of, of the word sin. Uh, What's that? Yeah, hamartia, um, what's the verb form of that? Amartain? I don't know. I don't remember. 
Um, yeah, that's right. All right. Um, okay, then the catechism memory work today. So we're done with the confession absolution. Uh, we're moving back into the sacrament of the altar. And um, I think I'll just comment here on the catechism uh, definition of what is the sacrament of the altar. It's the true body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ under the bread and wine instituted by Christ himself for us Christians to eat and drink. So if you remember back to your Lutheran confirmation, you might have been taught in, with, and under the bread and wine. Um, and that's from the large catechism, actually. So the small catechism teaches just under the bread and wine. And then Luther expands that in the large catechism as a teaching tool, in, with, and under. Um, and the idea of in, with, and under, like I said, it's a teaching tool that in, uh, Luther says, is to signify the real presence, that the body and blood of Jesus is really there in the bread and wine. Uh, with is to signify um, that both, um, well, what we would call uh, the sacramental union, which is a fancy way of saying that both the bread and wine, uh, the physical elements, as, long, as well as the sacramental elements, the body and blood, are there together. They're both there. Um, and they're, they're connected, right? They're, they're joined together. They're, un- they're, they're in union uh, together in the same way that uh, the two natures of, of Christ, God and man, are, are in one union in the, in the one person of Jesus Christ. Um, not mixed together into a third thing, but, but in union. And um, so, so real presence, uh, the sacramental union, and then under is uh, the, the idea that they are the body and blood are hidden in in the, insofar as when we go up and we receive the body and blood, we don't taste body and blood, we don't feel body and blood, we that we feel and touch and taste the physical elements, the the bread and the wine, right? The wine still tastes like Taylor Port wine. Um, but but the body and blood are, are there under it, right? So in, with, and under. Now, that's a good teaching tool. What I'm trying to get at, actually, however, is that when we start to dissect it like this, sometimes that can make it a little more confusing. Um, <laughs> and when Luther writes this, so he, he kind of – he writes the catechisms as a teaching tool for uh, people who basically didn't know anything, right? So – I can go into the history of the, the catechisms and the Saxon visitation and how Luther went to all these Catholic churches that had converted to Lutheranism and found out that the priests and the people didn't really know anything because all the priests had been doing for the last 20 years was saying private masses. Um, and so he wrote these catechisms to catch people up on basic Christian doctrine. However, whenever Luther writes uh, later in life, um, another... <laughs> Our, another document called the Small Card Ar- Ar- Articles, which is also in our Lutheran Confessions, uh, which he writes when he thinks he's dying. Um, he's going to die in 1546. He writes Small Card Articles in 1539. He, he 
is thinking he's going to die because he has um, like really bad kidney stones and a lot of other things. He, he thinks he's going to die, and he wants to be as straightforward as possible because he writes this small art articles as his kind of last confession of faith of what the evangelicals, that is the Lutherans, believe um, before there's a massive war with the Turks um, and between – well, and the – the Thirty-Year War with the um, the Lutherans and the and the Catholics, and um, he, he's kind of writing this in extreme circumstances. And I like the small call articles for this reason is because he's very straightforward and simple and clear. And when he writes about the Lord's Supper in the small call articles, all he says is, "It is the body and blood of Jesus." He doesn't say in, with, or under. Um, he takes away all that. He just says, this is our confession. It is the body and blood of Jesus. And I, I kind of like that because that's what the Bible says, right? <laughs> Jesus doesn't try and explain it. He just says, this is my body. This is my blood, right? Given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Um, do this as often as you can. Remember something. Uh, that that kind of simplicity, I think, is actually helpful uh, because when people try and explain things too much that are mysteries that God gives us, oftentimes they end up in air, right? So uh, obviously um, our evangelical friends who think of the Lord's Supper as purely symbolic, um, they over-explain it in the sense of just doubting the mystery, Right, that that it really could actually be there. That um, they just say they just think that's not even possible. Right. Then uh, we have our reform friends who will say, well, there is a real presence, but it can't really be a bodily presence uh, because Jesus can't be in two places at once, and so on and so forth. And um, I just I I think that. Um, I, and I've talked so so the Presbyterian pastor I'm friends with we we've debated this for like months 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 um, we've we've smoked many cigars over this topic mm-hmm. and um, my point to him is why not right like why why do you have to take out the corporeal ubiquitous presence of Christ's body and blood? located in the elements. Um, there, there's nothing in Scripture that uh, takes that away and that would make that not, uh, that would make that seem like it's not the case. Um, and I think when Luther says simply in the small card articles, it is my body and blood, that's where we always come back to. Um, that we always come that, that's what the Lutherans are always doing. Uh, whenever Luther debates people on this, uh, he always just says, yeah, 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 nice nice philosophy you've got going on there. but what about the words of institution? <laughs> this is my body, this is my blood. And that can seem kind of crass and kind of dismissive. Um, and Lutherans are actually pretty good at dealing with the philosophy stuff and and I can give a lot of rational arguments as and other scriptural arguments as to why I think um, the real corporeal ubiquitous presence of Christ's body and blood is in the elements. But 
it should suffice it for Christians to say, this is my body, this is my blood. Right? That's what we believe. That's what the Bible says. That's what Jesus says. Um, and every time we do this in remembrance of him, it is. So, uh, and I, I do like in the small catechism here how even, he says under, but um, how pretty simple it is. What's the sacrament of the altar? True body and blood of Jesus Christ, instituted by Christ for Christians to eat and drink. That's what it is, right? Uh, that Those are the three things. The elements, the word, what we're supposed to do with it, eat and drink, right? Pretty simple. So um, that's catechism. Any questions or thoughts on that? Comments? Okay. How does that... Transubstantiation. Um, well, transubstantiation is goes wrong in a couple of places. Uh, first of all, uh, transubstantiation uh, claims that the bread, the 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 bread and the wine, the elements, are no longer there. Um, they are there as basically kind of a mind trick that you can still uh, see them and, 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 and touch them and taste them as bread and wine, but it's not really bread and wine anymore. Um, and so this whole idea of uh, the sacramental union and, and the, the body and blood being hidden under the uh, bread and wine uh, is not really true in transubstantiation. They, the Catholics believe that it's the bread and wine are have really uh, become. They've changed into the uh, body and blood. Um, they just are are hidden um, in the sense that it's kind of a, a trick played on us by God, if you will. Which they wouldn't describe it like that, to be fair. But um, that's the short way to describe it. Now, the other place that they they go wrong is that they are to do this um, they're importing Aristotelian categories of uh, what we uh, call metaphysics really but philosophical categories from Aristotle who Aquinas picked up on and uh, of accidents and substance which, which dad you might be familiar with um, and they're using those categories to define what is the reality of what's going on in the sacrament. Uh, what's, what's the accidental cause and what's the substantive cause of these, the four causes of Aristotle, of, these, um, of, the, of the sacrament. And the problem with that is not that that can't be an accurate description of things. I mean, Aristotle was a really smart guy, and he could accu accu accurately describe things he saw. But, and, and Aquinas applies it to the Lord's Supper as a way to um, try and kind of make sense of what, uh, doctrinally, of what is going on in the Lord's Supper. The Lutherans always say, well, that's... That's fine, but that's not what Jesus says, right? Like, 
if you want to try and like philosophically describe kind of what's going on and behind the Lord's Supper, um, how Jesus is doing this or, or, or whatnot, um, like, okay, but that's kind of a useless errand to run because we have the words of Christ and we have the clear confession of uh not only the words of Christ, but then the biblical witness of how this is practiced, with how Paul receives this, um, in 1 Corinthians 10 and, and 11, where he recounts all of this, uh, that this is, when we break this bread and, and drink this cup, this is a participation in the body and blood of Christ, and um, how, how the early church receives this and, and does this for uh, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years before Aquinas comes along and tries to describe it. And so that use of philosophical categories, while it, it might be helpful, one, I think they actually end up do going wrong with their categories because they end up kind of screwing up the sacramental union. But then uh, on top of that, you just don't need those categories because we have scripture and, and we have uh, the clear words of Christ. So does that make sense? All right, uh, moving on then into Bible portion here. We are uh, through our overview of the Israelite kings. And so now you can tell all your friends and you can uh, win Bible trivia night and say that you know who Pekka and Pekaya are. And even your Baptist friends probably don't know that. So good on you for coming and paying attention. We're going to rewind a little bit back to one of our more famous kings of Israel. Uh, So we're still in the divided kingdom. We're still in the northern kingdom. But we're going to look at the prophets now. So we're in this time period. And we'll, as we move forward, um, let's see, we got... We've done the overview of Israel kings. We're going to do Elijah for a little bit um, and Elisha and Naaman and Jonah and talk a little bit about the Assyrian captivity. And then we'll go into uh, over to the southern kingdom and talk about all of Judah's kings and all of Judah's prophets, uh, if that makes sense. So we're taking this time period of the divided kingdom. We're doing all of Israel first and its kings and prophets. And then we're going to do the Uh, southern kingdom Judah with all of its kings and prophets. Um, So we're in the prophet section now of the northern kingdom of Israel. um, And the first major prophet in the northern kingdom is Elijah. And this is, uh, first of all, well, okay. So first of all, the context in the the kingdom of Israel is, uh, if you remember Ahab and Jezebel, Right, our favorite uh, king, right? Um, he was a king who first institute, uh, reinstituted in Israel Baal worship, Canaanite worship, right, which involved things like child sacrifice and homosexual temple prostitution and other very nice and kind things that uh, the Canaanites like to do. And uh, Jezebel herself was a very sweet girl. Um, you know, slaughtering God's prophets 
for no good reason at all and um, tricking Ahab into stealing from his neighbor and all sorts of other other wonderful things that Jezebel liked to participate in. Um, herself being a uh, Canaanite uh, woman of sorts. So this is the prophet. Uh, this is the time when Elijah comes along. Is under the reign of Ahab and Jezebel. Now I want to talk about Elijah the prophet or Elijah the person, um, just a little bit in the scope of the the whole Bible. And really, Elijah is probably the chief prophet of the divided kingdom of the the northern kingdom Israel. The there's. So you, the other the other major prophets in the Old Testament during this time period, like Isaiah and um, Jeremiah, and uh, we get Daniel uh, late, later on. Um, the, those are all Southern Kingdom prophets. Those are all Judah prophets, uh, basically, more or less. Sometimes there's like overlap. I mean, they're next door to each other, so sometimes thing events happen where there's a prophet talking to both sides. But um, Elijah is really the central figure of, of that prophet, of the prophets of that kingdom, right? Uh, you get Elijah who comes after him. Uh, you get like some minor prophets in there like Obadiah and Jonah and uh, so on and so forth, uh, Naaman. But Elijah is the guy. And when you look at Elijah and the rest of the Bible, too, he's also very, very important. So uh, do you remember anything about Elijah in the New Testament? Anyone recall anything about Elijah in the New Testament? There's a couple of instances where his name comes up. Well, that, so that's how he's taken up into heaven uh, later on in 1 Kings. But in the New Testament, any... Uh, uh, now, it doesn't make a reference really to the chariots of fire. Well, um, there might be one, but uh, what, I, what I'm thinking of is two big things. Uh, one is the transfiguration, right, where Jesus goes up on the mountain and takes Peter and James and John with him. And who appears there? Elijah and Moses, right? Moses and Elijah. And if you think about Moses and Elijah... Really, they're the two big prophets of the Old Testament, right? So Moses is the prophet who brings them out of, out of, uh, through the Exodus and uh, takes them to the promised land. And if you remember like Deuteronomy 18, uh, the prophecy of there will be a prophet uh, like me from a, among you, and that's talking about Jesus Christ. And then whenever um, we get to the New Testament and they're talking to John the Baptist, they say, are you the prophet? Talking about the one from Deuteronomy 18 that's like Moses. So Moses is this you know, big prophet, the, the one who gave the law, the one who wrote the Pentateuch. Um, I mean, Moses is huge, right? Well, Elijah gets to be next to Moses on, with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, right? So Elijah is also pretty big. Um, and if you kind of think about the time periods of the Old Testament, right, you got the, the period of Moses and Joshua, uh, so you have, well, you have Genesis, right, with the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and jo Jacob. Those are kind of the big guys there. You have the Exodus, which Moses is the big guy, 
And then you have the uh, judges, which none of the judges are really that great. And then you got David, who's huge in the New Testament as well, um, in the United Kingdom. Um, but then in the divided kingdom, Elijah's kind of the guy, right? And then Isaiah gets quoted a lot, um, but not really talked a lot about as a person. Elijah is more of a personality, right? Um, and part of this goes, okay, to my next big thing about the New Testament, which is, uh, first of all, if you look at the very end of the Old Testament in uh, Malachi, Malachi makes this prophecy uh, right at the very end of the Old Testament, um, in the very last chapter, uh, very last two verses of the Old Testament, actually. So if you go to the, the you're about two-thirds through your Bible. By the way, this is why we spend so much time on the Old Testament in Bible class. Which one's the Old Testament and which one's the New Testament? Okay. Oh, yeah. I mean, the New Testament is great, uh, but really it's, it's just a... Um, uh, what's the what's the thing after the end of a book? The um, not the opposite of a prologue. Uh, epilogue. epilogue. Yeah, the 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 New Testament's just an epilogue to the to the Old Testament. And that's being that's being dramatic. I'm exaggerating. Um, the New Testament's really important too. But but everything that happens in the New Testament is coming from something that ha- that that the Old Testament talks about. Right, it's it's just the fulfillment of uh, what the Old Testament was already expecting and talking about in depth for for a long time. So you're you're not going to understand the New Testament if you don't know the Old Testament, um, and especially when you get to a book like Revelation. Re- all Revelation is is a Bible trivia game. How well do you know your Old Testament prophets? Um, anyway, okay, that's beside the point. Last verse of the Old Old Testament. Last two verses. Malachi 4, 5 to 6. Look, I am going to send Elijah the prophet to you before the great and fearful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of their fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with complete destruction. So Elijah's coming back. That's what Malachi says. There's an Elijah who's coming back. And then, if you turn to the New Testament, uh, for instance, if you go... uh, especially to uh, like the gospel of Mark, um, right away, who's the first person in the gospel of Mark that we hear about after, after the first verse? So the first verse is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then, and then who do we start to hear about? John the Baptist. John the Baptist. And if you turn back over to Matthew chapter 11... For instance, and if and if you can't follow along as fast I'm going, that's okay. Um, if you turn over to Matthew chapter 11, verses 13 to 14, whenever uh, there's this scenario going on when John the Baptist is in is in prison and 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 Christ, and uh, he hears about what Christ is doing, uh, this is Matthew chapter 11, 13 to 14. In fact, and this is Christ talking, in fact, all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. If you are willing to receive it, he is the Elijah who is to come. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. So John the Baptist is this character who prepares the way of the Lord, right? 
who, who, who announces the coming of Christ and, and who is uh, preaching repentance for the, uh, for the forgiveness of sins and uh, instituting Christian baptism, uh, which Jesus fully institutes in Matthew 28. But um, uh, he's, he's changing the baptism of, of washing uh, for cleanliness in the Old Testament to the baptism of of repentance, and then Jesus is going to make that into a baptism of forgiveness. But anyway, John the Baptist is utterly important, and John the Baptist is this Elijah, right? He's the ultimate prophet, and he gets the name Elijah by Christ himself, which, by the way, brings me to an important point, which if you remember that early 2000s or maybe 1990s worship song, These Are the Days of Elijah, you know that one? These are the days of Elijah. That, that song, I don't, if you like it, I'm sorry. It's a theological nightmare. It's, it's terrible. Because these aren't the days of Elijah. Elijah came, and he announced the way of the Lord. These are the days of Jesus Christ. And, um, and that, that song, it like, I actually like pulled it up because I just remembered it thinking about this when I was preparing for this Bible study. And um, it, just like, it just takes random phrases from the Old Testament and just like sings them. It doesn't make it doesn't make any sense. Um, basically, if you sing, if you like read that song or hear that song, it, it's like a. It would make it would kind of make sense if it was like someone living in the divided kingdom saying it. <laughs> but anyway, um, it, it's just it's just funny uh, because it's just it's funny when when co- contemporary that this is this is kind of why I'm big on hymnody is because a lot of contemporary worship songs. Um, they, they're not, like I said earlier, hymns are poems and poems actually make sense, right? (laughs) Poems have a, have a, uh, have a scope, have a scope, right? Poems have a, uh, they, they might not speak in complete sentences all the time, but there's a, there's a structure and a, and a point being made, right? A lot of contemporary worship songs, there's no point. (laughs) It's just, it's just like phrases. Yeah, it's just. I, yeah, it's it's but it's just like phrases, you know, just kind of like floating that don't really have a point. <laughs> Look, that's what I mean. Uh, that's what that song's like. It's just like here's a phrase, here's a phrase, and uh, kind of like the American Pie song. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. Um, anyway, okay, that's that's all beside the point. But these are not the days of Elijah. Okay, so Elijah's super important. Um, Elijah is is huge. He's the prophet, um, and. And the New Testament recognizes him as such. Uh, that when you get specific references to, the, to a certain person in the New Testament like that, that's, that's pretty big. All right. So we're going to talk about 1 Kings 17, which is um, one of the, a couple of the stories, or it's really one big story of Elijah here. And the first thing that happens is that Elijah prophesies a famine in 1 Kings 17. So um, I'll just read this. Uh, we can, I think we have, um, we can, we can kind of break it down, not verse by verse, but section by section. Uh, Elijah from Tishbe, so uh, sometimes he'll be referred to as the Tishbite. Uh, one of the settlers of Gilead said to Ahab, as surely as the, so he's prophesying to the king, Ahab, as surely as the Lord lives, the God of Israel before whom I stand. There will be no dew or rain during the coming years except at my word. So he prophesies a famine. Then the word of the Lord came to him. Leave this place and turn east. Hide yourself 
uh, by the Kerith Ravine, east of the Jordan. You will drink from the stream, and I will command the ravens to provide for you there. So Elijah went and did just as the Lord had said. He lived in the Kerith Ravine, east of the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and in the evening, and he drank from the stream. Uh, so a couple things here. Uh, first of all, if you want to say Kerith or Cherith, I really don't care. Um, the, the old school way of pronouncing CH in the Old Testament is with a hard K. And um, that's because it's normally transliterating the letter uh, Ket in Hebrew, uh, which is kind of a weird sound. It's like a K sound. So, um, but I've heard recently more and more people switching over because I think it's just been CH in most Bibles for so long. A lot of uh, English speakers are switching over to CHs in the Old Testament uh, being ch. So Cherith or Ker- and I, I, I do the more old school on Kerith, but whatever you want, I don't care. Um, pronunciation's made up. Hebrew was dead for a long time. We don't know how it was pronounced. Um, anyhow, uh, yeah. <laughs> Go over to Grandpa. Go. Um, okay, but... To practical application, not just how you pronounce things. Uh, notice the order in which the prophecy happens and then what the Lord says to Elijah. So first of all, Elijah prophesies to Ahab, there's not going to be any rain or dew, which a famine in the ancient world is a big deal, right? Um, you can't just go and turn the sprinklers on the garden like I do whenever it doesn't rain and then still get produce, Right? If it doesn't rain in your fields, you you're out of luck. Right. You can't go to the supermarket and buy it. Um, you're going to be relying on hunting and gathering, and that's, you know, that's about it. And so Elijah has not yet, when he prophesies this, received the instruction of the Lord to go to a place where he's going to receive food, which means that Elijah himself is going to suffer this famine in his mind when he prophesies this, right? Uh, he's called to prophesy in this land to Ahab and Jezebel. He knows that. He's going to suffer the famine too. And um, this goes to a point I've made before, which is that when you get collective punishment for collective sin in nations in the Old Testament or in cities or wherever it may be, then people who are good people, quote-unquote, or even a better word would be faithful people uh, to God, still suffer the punishment of sin that comes upon the place. And uh, we've, we've talked about that before, that, that Christians who live in America, uh, if and when God punishes America for certain sins that America as a whole commits, uh, Christians are not going to be immune, or are not even now immune, from the punishments that, that the Lord sends. Right. And so uh, that's important to realize that that Elijah here is and, and this is something that, you know, the te- to me, the temptation of being a prophet and it, it's always the temptation of being a prophet um, or a preacher of God's word is to not preach the hard things, because when you preach the hard things, sometimes you're preaching them to yourself. 
right? And so this is why Jeremiah will say that the, the prophets will come and preach things that itching ears want to hear. It's easier to preach, preach things that people want to hear and to be the nice guy than to have to preach the hard things because then it seems like everyone likes you and then you don't have to hear the hard things yourself and you, and you can trick yourself into thinking you don't have to deal with the hard things, right? Well, Elijah is faithful. So Elijah doesn't do that. He knows he's going to experience famine or at least uh, he thinks he's going to experience famine and yet he remains faithful. And James actually highlights this in uh, his epistle. He talks about this chapter. When uh, so, if you if you turn or I, I'll, I'll just turn there and I can read it too. But to James chapter five, uh, it's in the last part of James, James chapter five, uh, sixteen to eighteen. So confess your sins to one another and pray for one another in order that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is able to do much because. It is effective. I love that verse in the Bible. Prayer is powerful. The prayer of a righteous person is able to do much because it is effective. Elijah was a man just like us. That's verse 17. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky gave rain, and the land produced its harvest. So James connects uh, Elijah and his prophecy of rain to his faithfulness in prayer. And what's actually really interesting to me is that James, 1 Kings 17, which is what James you know, had access to, I assume, unless the Holy Spirit in, in, the, in his inspiring of the book of James um, uh, told James this, but to me it seems like James just assumed that prayer was a part of what Elijah was doing, right? The first Kings 17 doesn't say Elisha prayed to God and then God told him to say this and then he said it. Uh, it just says that this is what God says, right? But Elijah knows that there's faithful prayer there, earnest prayer going on. Uh, James just assumes that about Elijah, that he prayed earnestly for this. Um, and that, in fact, Elijah prayed for the prophecy to come true. And, and uh, th this is uh, very reminiscent of like the Lord's Prayer that we pray for all these things that we know God has already said he's going to do, right? God has said he's going to give us our bread, our daily bread, and yet we pray any for it anyway. So uh, it's interesting that Elijah, that James talks about that in terms of prayer, um, not just in terms of like prophecy. So, anyhow, uh, Elijah is very faithful, but then God is faithful to Elijah, right? Uh, God, and, and Elijah doesn't even deserve this or even really need this, but, but God, out of his grace, uh, gives Elijah this gift of telling him that he can go to the Kerith Ravine and, um, and drink there in the midst of a drought, and receive uh, meat and bread uh, in the morning and the evening, which is uh, reminiscent, but also kind of a reversal, excuse me, of the Exodus, right? The wandering in the wilderness, uh, where they receive, so in the wandering in the wilderness, they receive 
uh, bread in the morning and meat in the evening. Elijah gets both bread and meat in the morning and in the evening. Uh, but notice Elijah doesn't complain, <laughs> unlike the Israelites. So it's a little bit of a reversal in that way. Um, but what this actually made me think of more than the Exodus is Psalm 23, right? He's going to lead you beside still waters and, and into green pastures. And uh, Elijah is faithful and receives this gift um, from, from the Lord, right? This is, so this is Psalm 23. It's Matthew 6, too. Notice the, notice the birds, um, that if God provides for the birds of the air, he's also going to provide for you as well. And who is it that brings him the food? The birds, the ravens, right? So, um, again, the New Testament means a lot more when you learn the Old Testament, right? So, um, you can you get all these things in the, the Old Testament, uh, and then Jesus just you know summarizes in the New Testament for you. So, all right. Um, then what happens is so that's verses one to seven. Then what happens is uh, he goes to the Kerith Ravine, um, and then. After a time, uh, the, that ravine dries up. And so God tells him, go to Zarephath. Tells him, go, get up and go somewhere else. Uh, the word of the Lord came to him. And um, already there you can, you can see how God's continual providence is with Elijah. right? And I, I think um, when we think about providence in America, because America is... Uh, so rich in bounty and uh, we're so kind of consumeristic and um, if you think about like 401ks for instance right you, the idea is that you're 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 saving for 50 years in the future you're putting away a little bit of money at a time and 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 if you think about like pantries like you have like all this food uh, stored up um, re- you know ready to eat that lasts you know, two, three, four, five years, or whatever, and um, that's like that is a very certain way of living that is not historically normal, right? And for Elijah, right? If you think about this, he's just he's <laughs> he has food for a day, for a time, right? But it's day by day. He doesn't know what what tomorrow is going to bring. Um, he, he only gets as much food as he needs in the morning and in the evening, and he goes to the ravine um, after there's a drought in one place, and then he gets it day by day, and then he goes, and, and the Lord tells him, yep, well, this well is dry now, and you're going to go somewhere else, right? And uh, that's, again, that's Matthew 6. Don't worry about tomorrow, for today has enough worries for itself. And, and we are really bad as Americans at living that way, right? We are so worried about the future constantly and uh, trying to prepare for it. And uh, if you think about another New Testament story, is um, this is Mark, and I, I'm going to say the chapter wrong if I try and guess, but um, the, fo- the foolish man, right? The, the, uh, the foolish rich man who... Uh, has such a abundance of grain that instead of figuring out how to serve his neighbor with it, he says, I'm going to build bigger storehouses so I can have all the grain I'm ever going to want. And then God comes to him and says, you foolish man, this night, this very night your, your soul will be required of you. 
and he dies, and it's all worthless, right? You can't take it with you when you die. Can't put a U-Haul on the hearse, right? I've heard that before. Um, it's all very it, but we're really like we're really bad about this. Um, we're we're like the foolish rich man. But Elijah is great. So um, well dries up, go to Zarephath, and uh, God says, "I've commanded a woman there, a widow, to provide for you." And uh, we'll finish up with this. So he gets to Zarephath, and the, <laughs> this is hilarious. I mean, I can't. The reason Elijah is so great is because he never doubts. He, so when he gets there, he, God had told him this widow is going to provide for you. If I was Elijah, what would you expect when you get to uh, Zarephath and you get to the widow's house? I would expect a really rich widow with a lot of food and drink, right? Because the widow's going to provide for you, right? Well, he gets there, and it's a poor widow with a little bit of flour left in a jar and a little bit of oil in a jug, and she says to him, yeah, I'm about to go cook this thing I have left, the only food we have left up for me and my son, and then we're going to die. It's going to be our last meal. (laughs) I mean, it's hilarious. And... And Elijah just says, okay, sounds good. Cook it up and give me some. And the Lord's going to provide. He doesn't doubt. And uh, it's, it's, really, it's really amazing the faithfulness that Elijah, Elijah has. So um, he continues to live uh, with the widow of Zarephath for the rest of the chapter. So we'll pick that back up next week. Um, but uh, Elijah is a little bit insane in his faithfulness. And uh, so that's that's what I want you to take away is to uh, to be more like Elijah, right? To think uh, to think of the worries of today, and and uh, let tomorrow worry for itself, because uh, God God really does provide for His people, and He is faithful, and uh, the prayer of a faithful person works much as it is working. So uh, we'll end there. Any final questions, comments? Let's end in a word of prayer. Marcus, let's pray. Can you pray? Marcus, can you pray? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for all your good gifts which you give us, which you provide for us our daily bread as we need it every day from your fatherly hand. We pray that you would help us uh, to live uh, for today, uh, but more importantly, to live for the kingdom of your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, and that we would let tomorrow worry for itself, uh, for we know that even tomorrow you will provide for us as you do for the birds of the air. We pray that you would bless our worship today, help us to receive the holy sacrament uh, in faith, uh, your, your true body and blood for the forgiveness of our sins. We pray all of this through your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.